the best aren't they I want it all I want it all I want it now isn't that the cry of our culture isn't isn't that what the world lives for An instant pleasurable gratification in the moment it's why um it's why we we have credit cards it's why what we do now isn't we think I want that I buy it and then I'll think about how I can purchase it and, and pay it off I want it all I want it now it's why we can assume that the dream life is the life that everything works in, in this world. I read about a guy yesterday, I don't know if you saw this, this, this bloke in Canada, did anyone see this? He managed to have his birthday, retire and win the lottery all on one day. That, that's the day we dream about, isn't it? I want it all, I want it all, I want it now. He, Mr. Ping, that was his name, said, it's unbelievable that all three events happened on the same day. I've worked hard for so many years. But, but that's what we're sort of living for. We're living to make the day when it's our birthday. We manage to not work and retire and we win the lottery. And the danger is that the, the church can almost peddle the same thing. We can think that God's job is so that I can have it all, I can have it all, I can have it now. So, so what God needs to do is sort out Monday. You know, thank you Lord for turning on the sun. Please, could I be healthy? Could I get a better paid job? Could the kids all play in serene peace? Will I get to read quietly the paper on my own? I want it all. I want it all. I want it now. And there's a great danger that we can actually feel that that's what Christianity is about. Having it now. But the problem we saw last week at the beginning of Hebrews 12 is God isn't promising to make us happy by, by giving us everything we want. He, he doesn't treat us like spoilt children. You know, I want it, okay, you can have it. No, he's a genuine loving father who disciplines us. He's got something better for us. He's using all the circumstances of our life to make us like Jesus. And that can be hard. Because we have to live in the real world and the real world is a world where there is suffering and sadness and difficulty. Yes, the sun shines and there's so much to celebrate, but actually there'll be no one in this room who either personally or does not know someone who is struggling with pain and illness, someone who has died before their time, as we say, someone who's struggling with relationship breakdown. That, that's the reality of the world we live in. And the question is, are we going to live that world trusting in Jesus as our Lord, knowing that heaven is our home, listening to God's word? Because if you remember, the Hebrew Christians, uh, the, the people receiving this sort of first century sermon for the first time, they were thinking, actually, I want it all, I want it all, I want it now. I want life to be easier. And following Jesus seems to make life harder. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to live with Jesus as Lord. I'm going to live as though my home is not in heaven but on earth. And I'm not going to listen to his word. I'm going to harden my heart to his word. 
and what we've seen week by week, is the writer saying, no, stick with Jesus. This is called an exhortation, Hebrews. It's a, a pleading with a church. Stick with Jesus. And as we come to the end of the letter, he begins to tell them what a life, if you're going to live for Jesus, looks like. And we've got three things that we're going to see this morning. Here's the first thing. It's a life with a hunger for holiness. A hunger for holiness. Holiness is an interesting word in the Bible. It just means to be set apart as God's people. A life that lives to be like Jesus. I wonder if you look down at verse 14. Can you see the problem words? I've got some problem words in verse 14 of chapter 12. If you can open up your Bible at Hebrews 12, going to be a great help. Here are my problem words. This verse is littered with them. Make, here's the problem word, every effort to live at peace with everyone. Isn't that, that's a problem, isn't it? In fact, this passage is, is littered with problem words. Verse 15, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Verse 16, see that no one is sexually immoral. If you remember from the end of last week, uh, we're a team, we're a family. And our job as a family is to ensure that all of us make it over the finishing line. Go to be with the Lord Jesus in rest. We're here for each other in that. And so as we, we come to verse 14, relationships, of course, are the heart of what we do. Make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See, see being holy, living for Jesus, isn't set apart from our relationships. It's actually the heart of our relationships. And, and literally this says... Make every effort is pursue peace, run after, chase after peaceable relationships with everyone. Because, of course, if we say, look, I rejoice in the God who so loves me that he gave his only son that I could be reconciled in relationship to him, how can I be content with broken relationships with other people? If I sing of, of the God who has done everything that I might know his love and have peace with him now and forever, how can I bear a grudge or not pursue making relationships right with people? And the problem here is this peace word is about a wholesome relationship. It's not like sort of peace in Korea. We've, we've heard a lot about that in the last week or so, haven't we? There they are. I'm not even going to attempt their names. Kim and his South Korean mate, and the, um, they, I just, Kim, they, they, they shook hands, they embraced, they, they said hello to one another, but what did they do then? They went back over the two lines, into their separate countries, and ignored one another. It's not peace like that, it's like, you know, you can sit over this side of your church, over here, and you can go back to this side of the church, over here, and we sort of said, make up, and we've been nice to each other, and said sorry, but then I'm largely just going to ignore you. Because that's much more easy. One of the dangers of being in a reasonably large church is you can just go and find some new friends. It's not peace like that. Make every effort. Run after peace. That's what we're to do. If we have a broken relationship, there is nothing that we should not be doing, not just to paper over the cracks with a child like, sorry, but to restore it to a quality relationship. And what will that look like? I'm uh, reading a book uh, at the moment. It's called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. 
And uh, one of the interesting things it says is that because of the smartphone and, and technology, we found an easy way not to go through the painful business of communicating with one another properly. And I think that's especially the case in broken relationships. I mean, it's hard enough to front up to someone and say, sorry, it's easier to text them. What would it look like to pursue peace in relationship? Well, it's got to look like a face-to-face meeting. It's got to look like a heart that is broken and contrite and that wants to work at that relationship now until the day you both stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as brother and sister in him. Look at verse 14 again. Do you see it? Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's a serious business. In fact, time and time again, the Bible says that the mark of the Christian is the way that they do love one another. Uh, at university, I went to a church, actually it's a church that uh, Kay Mumford worked at. The vicar was a guy called Mark Ashton. He died in 2010 from cancer. And listen to what Mark said very wisely about this. I see my sin very clearly. I see how much it still controls my life. I think how little time I have got left to make further progress against my pride, my irritability, my grumpiness, my selfishness. I need to keep short accounts now because I may never have time to make amends or apology in this life. Time is short. Short accounts. Make every effort. Run after peace with every one. And it's not just our relationships that matter, it's the example we set each other. So the writer says in verse 15, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. It's a reference back to the Old Testament. When uh, Moses was leading the people of God into the promised land of Canaan, uh, he preached a sermon in the book of Deuteronomy and he said this in Deuteronomy 29 verse 18 make sure there is no man or woman clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations make sure there is no root among you that produces bitter poison it only takes one person to lead others astray our hearts are wired to worship anything other than God. Money, family, children, power, status, sex, whatever it is, all we need is maybe someone to show us how to do it. Uh, that, that was Esau's problem in verse 16. Esau valued his appetite, his heart's desires, more than he valued his God. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. If you you remember the account of Esau from Genesis, he's offered the option of have God's promised blessing or have a bowl of stew, but by Jacob, his devious brother. And he goes, I'm hungry. He's like a teenager Esau. He even says, I'm going to die. He's not going to die. He's just hungry. I'm going to die. And what's it? It's lentil stew. A bowl of lentil stew. There's no meat in the thing. But but he has that rather than the promises of God. 
This is an option here. Are, you, are we going to be the sort of people who point one another to God's grace? Or are we going to be the sort of people who say, look, have the lentil stew of the world. It really is better than God's promises. And by the way, that's the link between sex and stew in, in verse 16. It's this physical appetite satisfaction. You, you see, whether it's trying to uh, indulge yourself uh, uh, by sexual immorality. And sexual immorality in the Bible is anything outside sex between a, a man and a woman within marriage. Anything that causes you a loin buzz outside the woman and man you're married to, that is sexual immorality in the Bible. If that's what you're going to go for, or whether you're going to go for the sort of gluttonous taste sec- sensation, whatever you are doing to indulge your physical appetites, now, here, I want it all, I want it all, I want it now, here, rather than trust the promises of God for a perfect new life with him in the future. So the writer says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. It's, uh, it's in this book again I'm reading. Uh, I'm not very intelligent, so I can only keep one book in my mind at a time. And it talks about how that the phone has actually me- meant that we think we can have a life of secret vice and other people don't know. I think the computer began to do this, isn't it? We're sitting in the darkness of our room, or we've got our smartphone there, and we're in our own little world and people don't know. And there are some terrifying statistics f- about uh, pornography amongst men that had come from research in the States. Pornography amongst Christian men. Do you see the stats? I'll put them up on the screen. Ongoing pornography use that is admitted by Christian men, 15% over the over 60s, 20% in the 50s, 25% in the 40s, 30% in the 30s, and nearly 50% in the 18 to 29 age range. I thought about getting those percentages to stand up in the, the age range. I thought that would be interesting, wouldn't it? That's going to be a battle for us here today. Actually, pornography is relatively common amongst women as well. The the statistics are slightly less, but it's not unheard of amongst women. And that's why the writer says, look, don't let any bitter root grow up to you. Let no one be sexually immoral or, or godless like Esau. Why? Well, look at verse 17. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Literally, it says Esau did not find a place of repentance. See, once he'd rejected God's promises, there was nowhere else for him to go for blessing. It was his mind he couldn't change. His own heart was closed to repentance. He could not find a place of repentance. And if you look at the account in Genesis 24, that's exactly right. Esau never admits his stupidity. He just gets more and more angry with his circumstances and with his brother. You see, if you make your physical appetites, if you make sex your God, if you make sexual gratification now outside marriage your God, then the danger is you will never come back to him because you will harden your heart in it. Listen to Mark Ashton again. As the distance between me and the finishing line decreases... I'm encouraged to believe more strongly that I will make it. I know it's God's work and not mine that will get me there. But it is still reassuring to know that the time is short 
and the opportunity to fall into gross sin is diminishing. I've always been aware of the huge depth of depravity of my own heart and the threat that poses to me every day. Now there are many fewer days left to face that threat than I thought. You aware of the depravity of your own heart? Are you hungering for holiness? So so craving pleasure in your God rather than the, the instant satisfaction of indulging your pride, your emotional appetite, so you refuse to pursue peace in that relationship. It's done with. You've done your bit. I mean, Jesus had to die for you, but all you're willing to do is say sorry briefly or wait for them to say sorry because they started it. Are you hungering for holiness? Are you hungering for holiness with each other in a way that means you'll encourage one another? Not indulging your physical appetite, but but willing to seek help if you're struggling with issues of sexual immorality or if your life is just about craving stuff for you here and now. Because remember, this is about us. This is about the church. This is not a plea with an individual. This is a plea to a family, a community of people. We are here for you. I hope you are here for me as I struggle with these things. Are we going to hunger for holiness together? But because there is not a bloke in this room or a woman in this room who has not struggled in one way or another with the sort of things that are described here. And we need each other if we're going to hunger for holiness. Now, now we hunger for holiness, why? Well, because heaven is our home. It's the second thing we see. You see, verse 18 in this this chapter actually begins with the word for. This is the reason that we hunger for holiness, because heaven is our home. If you're not a Christian here today, you need to understand, we don't try and live lives to please God so we can go to heaven. No, it's because he gives us heaven through his son, the Lord Jesus, that we so love him and we want to please him. And the writer contrasts two mountains to help us understand that. Have a look down at verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word was being spoken to them. Now, what he's pitching here is God coming down at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus to do business with Israel. It was a knee-knocking occasion. If you touch the mountain, the writer says, every man, woman, or child, every animal died because God was there in his blazing purity, a lethal purity for impure people. The sky went black. It was pierced with flames that indicated the presence of God. And when God spoke, they begged for him to stop because it was so frightening. And so verse 21, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. Everything about God coming down at Sinai said, you cannot approach me. I am holy and pure. You cannot come close to me. But, but that's not where we've come. Now no, look where we've come in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion was the mountain the temple was built on in, in the middle of Jerusalem. It was the place where God dwelt. If God visited Sinai, he hung out permanently at Zion. And this isn't the physical place, Jerusalem. This is the heavenly Jerusalem, where God is now. 
And it's where angels are singing to him, thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly in verse 22. It's to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The one true church of all people who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the firstborn over creation. That the one whose names are already written in heaven. Did you see that? Because do you see the, the tense? Bit of a grammar thing here. They're doing grammar again in primary school. Some of us missed it entirely. But do you see the tense of the verbs in verse 22 following? You have come. You have come. You have come. It's, it's past. The writer is saying, if you follow the Lord Jesus, you have come to God. You have come to his great gathering in heaven. You have come to a joyful assembly of angels. You are now perfect. You are righteous with God. Why? Because verse 24, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was killed by his brother Cain in Genesis 4. His blood, I guess, shouted from the ground, give me justice. But Jesus' blood shed on the cross for us, it speaks of the one who died in our place, receiving our justice so that we can be right, righteous before God now, totally innocent because the Son of God has died for me. And therefore we have come to God. At Mount Sinai, Moses sprinkled the the book of the law with the blood and he sprinkled the people with the blood to seal the deal, the covenant. But, but now what has happened is God has sprinkled those who, who follow Jesus with his blood, his blood shed for us so that we are now right with God forever and he's written the law on our hearts so that we want to obey him. You see, the contrast between these two mountains is the contrast between fear because you can't approach God and confidence to come into his presence. A law you cannot keep and a righteous law keeper who's died for you. Uh, being terrified before a holy judge and being given a seat at the table of the greatest party that has ever been thrown. And the writer's point is simple. You have all of that. Your place is booked. Your part in God's people is absolutely certain. On a Friday, I was uh, with a, a few people. Um, I was doing some training, and they were talking about how one of their daughters was going to sing at the wedding. I thought, the wedding? Oh, the wedding! I mean, there is only the wedding, isn't it? It's coming, it's May the 19th, the wedding. They're going to be there with, with Harry and Meghan singing. Now, now, I can tell you now, you're not going to the wedding unless you've got an invite. It'll have your name on. But if you've got the invite, you're going to the wedding, it's certain. Okay? But you'll only have that invite if you're important, if you've done some community service, if you've got a relation who's in the royal family, or if you've nicked it. You have to do something to get the invite, don't you? But our invite to the greatest celebration of all time, the ultimate wedding, comes not because of who we are or what we've done, it comes totally free because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and it is utterly certain you see heaven is our home that's, that's the real you 
That the real you is the person who's going to spend eternity rejoicing with angels in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what spiritually you have now. And you need to remember that because, of course, your heart is saying, I want it all, I want it all, I want it now. And you think reality is this. I can get it. It's mine. I want it. And the writer is saying, no, reality is what you've got with Jesus. And you know, one day, all that's going to go, and Jesus is going to be all that's left. So, So live for that. Now, that's the last thing. You see, it's hunger for holiness, because heaven's your home, so heed God's voice. Look at verse 25 with me. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? If you rejected God's word that he spoke from Sinai, you got punished. It's far, far worse to reject his word that he speaks about Jesus. That's been the issue all the way through Hebrews, hasn't it? Are we going to conform to the world, or are we going to listen to the word of promise from God about the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we going to go for short-term pleasure now, I want it all, or are we going to go for trusting God's promises forever to go to rest with the Lord Jesus Christ? I know, what do you like at listening to people? Oh, we had a classic incident last night. Our, our four-year-old was on the, uh, on the chair. Uh, we're sitting, eating out, you know, it's a classic British thing, it was warm, so everyone got outside, and he's on the chair at the end of, end of the garden table, and he thought he'd stand up, Whee! you know, you can do that when you're four, and we said, sit down, sit down, Thomas, whoa, it's very obedient in our house, sit down, whoa, eventually he sat down, but then he was throwing his weight around, and then suddenly he disappeared, and there's this scream, and the whole chair had gone whack backwards, he was okay, he, he pretty hard-headed, yeah, you know, we picked him up, we cuddled him, said, don't do that again. What do you like at listening? Yeah, we, we're, we're not happy Thomas fell and, and suffered the consequences. I mean, God's not happy if you ignore his voice, but you will suffer the consequences of ignoring the voice of God. Have a look at verse 26 with me. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. You see, the shaking of Mount Sinai, the, the massive earthquake, is nothing compared to what is promised by the prophet Haggai here. The shaking of the earth when the Lord Jesus returns to judge all people. And that shaking will destroy all created things. He'll wipe the earth clean, and all that will remain is his people as he renews the earth, and we get to live with him forever. So, so everything we've wanted and treasured and slaved for, other than Christ, gone in a moment. But when Jesus is your king, you're in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And on that day, you'll be safe. Because there is another day when there's shaking in the Bible. It comes between Sinai and between the day the Lord Jesus returns. It was shaking around another mountain, a hill outside Jerusalem. And Matthew's Gospel records that as the Lord Jesus died and he shed his blood for us, there was an earthquake, that the ground shook. That the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We've seen that in Hebrews, haven't we? So that we can now draw near to God in confidence. And the tombs gave up their dead that showed us that if we come to Jesus, death is not the end for us. We will live forever. 
And because of that shaking, because of the shaking of the cross, we know that we stand before God with confidence on the day of judgment. So what do we do? Verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and all. We worship him. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. We don't mess with God. He's still consuming fire. His son had to be crucified for us to be forgiven. We don't treat him lightly, but we worship him. That, that word worship has the sense of serve him. It's not just singing a few songs together. It's leading our whole lives for him. And how do we do that? Well, we heed his voice. We listen to him. And as we listen to him, we hear his precious promises. And as we hear those precious promises, we want to be more like the Lord Jesus and we hunger for holiness. And as we hunger for, hear those promises, we reflect on the fact that heaven's our home because of all God has done for us. So let me ask you, do you want to worship this God? The one who loves you like this, who's done everything for you. Because if you do, are you listening to him? Are you making every sermon you can make? Because you want to hear his voice, because that is reality in a world that's going to end. Are you getting to every Bible study you can make because you want to hear his voice? Are you a daily Bible reader because you want to hear his voice? Are you heeding the voice of God? Because in the end, there is more reality in this book than you will find online, on the news, in any magazine or paper that you read. And the reality we read in this book is what will enable you to keep going with Jesus through the world you can touch until you go to a perfect new world to be with him forever, a world that is already yours because of what Christ has done for you. So, hunger for holiness, because heaven is your home. So heed God's voice today and every day.